Well, good morning, everybody. Let's all turn to Revelation chapter 21. That's where we're going to be spending a lot of our time today. It's toward the end of your Bible, Revelation 21. We're going to look at the first four verses. Let me read this for us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, what a a wonderful passage of Scripture we get to look at today. All of our hope, all of eternity sitting before us here in these words. God, would you turn our hearts and our minds to to worship you and to receive from you the, the great hope that you have for us here. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Chuck gave us a great introduction to our look at eternal destiny. And he thankfully took upon himself the subject of eternal judgment, or hell. And at first glance, it seemed like I get to play good cop this week and butter all of you up with happiness and joy, fluffy clouds and rainbows. But the more I've sat with the subject of eternal blessedness, or heaven the more I've had to grasp with the fact that we don't have a good understanding of heaven. And I think part of this could be because Jesus talked about hell and judgment more than he talked about heaven. I believe that what has happened is not that we don't believe in heaven, but that we have sold ourselves way too short on what heaven will be like. I feel a lot of times the discussion in our culture about heaven and hell sounds more like we're comparing resorts that we're going to go to on vacation It's like, hey, uh, where do you want to go for eternity? Oh, your options are this place, it's very bright, it's going to be relaxing, probably great golf courses. Um, You know, it doesn't say it anywhere specifically, but I believe that all of our favorite pets will be there uh, waiting for us. Let's see, there's that place, or, okay, there's this other one. Um, I'll be honest with you, it doesn't have a lot going for it. Um, It will be hot. It'll definitely be very hot there. And that's how we have a discussion about heaven and hell. I did college ministry for several years before I came to Westchester. And I got into this discussion a lot. What is heaven going to be like? What is hell going to be like? And with these college guys, there were many times where we'd be having this conversation. They're, I'm so excited for heaven. I'm so excited for Jesus to return. I'm really looking for all that to happen soon. I hope it happens in my lifetime. But if I'm honest, I really hope it happens after my wedding night. And I know that that's kind of silly or kind of funny, but I want us all to search our hearts this morning, and I don't think it'll take us long to realize that we've all put something in that place that's just a little higher than heaven. Is it getting married? Is it having children? Is it having grandchildren? Is it retiring? Is it finally making enough money or having a certain status or a title? Because inside all of us, there's something that says, heaven sounds great and all, But what I'm really looking to is just like a little bit better than what I have here. 
And this is not because the things that we desire are bad in and of themselves, but because our sights on heaven are just way too small. Now, before we start getting into specifics about what heaven is going to be like, I want to dive into how we've gotten to this place. Uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, verses th- uh, chapter 3, verse 11, which will be up on the screen, it says this, that God has put eternity into man's heart. Inside each and every person is the sense of life eternal. And this is exactly why we think in terms of future planning. This is why we think of things like legacy. This is why we have that instinct inside of us that tells us there's something beyond this moment. And that we, what we do now is going to matter in the future, even beyond death. God created us for eternity. Let us remember that God created heaven and earth all the plants and animals, and he created man and woman, and he called it all good. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. They enjoyed together the beautiful, good creation. And when man worked the earth, it didn't fight back against him, but it yielded plentiful fruit. Man and wife were naked without shame, and they had no tension in their relationship. God's design was perfect communion between God and man, between man and wife, and between humans overseeing God's creation. And this was meant to be forever. As I'm sure you know, this all changed. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's perfect plan, and instead they desired to go their own way. They ate from the tree that God commanded them not to, and when God found out, he punished their disobedience. I'm going to read for you from Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, I'm sure you've probably heard this passage before, and when we talk about this passage, we talk a lot about the childbearing pain, maybe some of the nature of work, But I want something to really stand out to you today. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Something's very wrong here. This is not how it was meant to be. Man was meant to live forever. Our bodies were not meant to perish. Sin has broken our bodies, and because of this, death has entered into the created order. Romans 5.12, which will be up on the screen, says this. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Sin and death invaded the created order, and broke the perfect relationship of God with man, man with woman, and humankind over God's creation. God kicks Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, and away from the tree that gives life. And from this point on in human history, man and woman, with eternity in their heart, are searching and are striving, trying to fight their way back into Eden, the everlasting peace, the shalom, 
the rest that God so often speaks of in Scripture. Not only eternity, but Eden is written on our hearts. Each and every human is longing and groaning for Eden, and we will strive eternally for it. The problem is, because of sin, we're looking for that satisfaction, that rest, in lesser created things. We want the eternal pleasures of heaven, but we settle for the shadows of those things here and now. And when we do this, this is called idolatry. We try to find that life, that pleasure, that rest in anything other than Jesus. Whether it be another religion, whether that be money, or health, or work, or sex. We're searching for that satisfaction outside of the one who can actually give it. See, we don't need a heaven that is only a little bit better than life now. We don't need a heaven that's an extended vacation. We have real problems. We have deep longings that need fixing. The good news is this. The heaven that Jesus is bringing to us is one that satisfies all the deepest longings of our hearts. Let's look back at Revelation 21. 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The Bible is one long story. And that should be an obvious statement, but I think we forget sometimes. We know that if we want to find out where we come from, we should look towards the beginning of the book. But far too often, we forget where we are going. Too many Christians do not keep this chapter front and center with their theology Because we can be tempted to think the only thing that really matters is what happens when I die. The Bible begins with the creation of heaven and earth, and it ends with the creation of new heavens and new earth. And this is not a coincidence. This is all on purpose. You and I are only a blip somewhere in the middle of these two things. God has much bigger plans than you and I. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 1, verses 9 through 10. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What we see here in the end, the first heaven and the first earth pass away, and there's a new heaven and a new earth. And now I think it's a proper question to ask, why do we need a new one? Now, there's much debate over this about just how new this new creation is going to be, whether the old is destroyed or more like renewed and transformed into this new creation. And I think wherever you land on that, what we need to gain from this passage is that John is emphasizing the condition of the new one. It's pure. It's crisp. It's lovely in a way that makes our earth look outdated, antiquated, one that looks worn out. This one is new and better in every way. The sea has also passed away. Now, the way that sea is talked about in apocalyptic literature, it's most likely not a literal body of water, but it's more speaking to as a symbol of chaos and rebellion and danger, and this too is not in the new creation. This has passed away. God's plan has been to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. And he has seen it fit that he not just make this earth a little bit better, 
but to replace what was broken with something new. The first heaven and earth were subject to rebellion, to decay, to brokenness, disease, and death. And God chooses to release his creation from the bondage to what is perishable and instead transform heaven and earth to the imperishable. God brings about a new heaven and a new earth, and then he brings down a new city out of the clouds. John compares this to a bride adorned for her husband, pure, bright, set apart, all dolled up, beaming. If we skip down to verses 10 through 18, we get more description about this new Jerusalem. It says this, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, the south three gates, the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The city is radiant, like the most rare of jewels, clear as crystal, covered in gold. And now, this could be literal or this could be figurative. But I think it's a lot more helpful to see that the point that John is getting at is the purity, the radiance, the holiness of this new city. And then we're given the dimensions of this new city. And once again, this could be literal, but I think it's speaking to something more important than that. To get the full effect of this chapter, you actually need to compare it with Ezekiel's visions of the temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48, which is a lot of information that we don't have time to go into today. But it foreshadows what John sees here. The city is a square with equal length, width, and height. And it might seem weird that we're going to go live in a giant cube, but this is where we need to see the deeper significance. In the temple that Solomon built which was a more grandiose version of the tabernacle, the most holy place was a perfect cube, 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. The holy of holies, the most holy place in the temple signified for God's people the place where heaven met earth. In fact, the decorations of all the temple was decorated to be like the Garden of Eden. In the new heavens and the new earth, The true and greater Jerusalem is the meeting place of heaven and earth. In this new city, there is no temple because we will be living in the most holy of holy places. The longing inside each and every one of us is for newness. We long for a day when the decaying world around us will pass away and the city that is written on our hearts descends from the sky. And Jesus is coming to replace the broken world with a new one that cannot be corrupted and cannot be tarnished, but will sparkle and shine for eternity. 
Let's read verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. With a loud voice, God declares the fulfillment of a great thread running through Scripture. God will dwell with his people. He will be their God. They will be his people. Remember back to the garden where God walked with his people. He talked with them in in unceasing fellowship. And since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God is the one who has been pursuing his people. God chooses for himself a people. God makes covenants to reveal his promises. God blesses and multiplies his people. God redeems his people out of slavery. God gives them land. God gives them a kingdom and establishes an everlasting kingdom. And despite all of these ways that God has pursued his people, they still rebelled. They still sought after other gods and they continued breaking that fellowship. And in response to all of that, God sent his own son to once and for all pay the punishment for sin and to gather all God's people from across the globe. Do you see the significance of this moment in Revelation? This is the culmination of all of God's pursuits. Finally, it will all be complete. He will be our God. We will be his people. No more rebellion. No more broken fellowship, everlasting, forever, unceasing, perfect communion with our God, ever before him, in his presence, forever. My question for you this morning, is this what your heart is longing after? When you picture heaven, does it center around being with Jesus for eternity? We need to move away from assuming this point. Like, well, yeah, of course Jesus will be there. And instead be able to say, the thing I am most looking forward to, the thing that satisfies the longing in my heart is that I am walking with my Savior day after day for eternity. Too often we get bogged down by the details and lesser understandings of the afterlife. Something that I love about living in Des Moines is our airport. And I don't know if you do much air travel or if you go often to pick people up from the airport, but it's the perfect size that you can park and you can walk in and you can actually go wait for the person that you're picking up. And a lot of people do this. Um, Some people are there holding up welcome home signs and they have flowers. And you could go there any night of the week and get this emotional rush of the hugs and laughter and, and joy of seeing people reunited with the people that they love. It's a really great thing. But I think sometimes that's as good of a picture as we have of heaven, the cosmic airport terminal. Or we get really hung up on whether or not our favorite pets are going to be there waiting for us. Or what do we do with Jesus' words that suggest we won't be married in heaven? Are we really just going to worship all the time? Are we able to have any fun? Is it just going to be a really long church service? (laughs) What's it going to be like, right? When faced with all these questions, I'm actually so thankful that the pictures of heaven that we have are just shrouded in mystery and symbolism because what it does is it brings into focus what the main thing is. The main thing is Jesus is on the throne. We will live with him forever. 
He will be our God. We will be his people. The question remains, is that the heaven that you want? Is that enough for you? Now, you don't need to be ashamed of asking those other questions and and having that curiosity about what things are going to be like, but when you get the answer to those questions, they are going to pale in comparison to the presence of Jesus. If our questions about heaven prevent us from seeing the greatest gift of all, then we can be sure that we are settling for lesser things. Set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, our great high priest, our forever king. He is the only one who can satisfy the deepest longing in your soul. So check your heart and make sure he is what you are longing for. If you are longing for lesser things, you will be satisfied by something temporary and perishable. Let's look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If you want to experience the deep longing in your heart for the new heaven and the new earth, you need to be honest with your earthly experience. You may have made it to church this morning unscathed from the brokenness that this world has to offer, but I bet you won't make it the afternoon. If you want to experience the brokenness, just turn on the news. Open up Facebook. Open up Twitter. Enter into that place of tension in your life, the things that cause sadness and pain, the things that cause grief and mourning. And I say enter into that because far too often we shove these things aside and we say... I can't complain. I'm doing better than I deserve. I'm fine. You know what? You're not fine. You live in a fallen world with sin and pain everywhere. And I want to make a big deal out of that because we live in the land of riches and luxury and comfort. Because by comparison to much of the world, we feel like we can't complain about our lives. But let's be honest that even where we live, there is depression. There is suicide. There is murder. There is divorce. There are abortions. There is cancer. There is hunger. There is neglect. There is abuse. There is racism. There is sexism. There is adultery. There is theft. There is anger. There is contempt. There is death. This is the world we live in. The deepest longing of our hearts is a God who knows our pain, who has experienced what this world has to offer, and who will wipe away all of those tears from our eyes and assure us the former things have passed away. Don't settle for less. Don't settle for thinking that voting in the right politician is going to fix these things. Don't escape into drugs or alcohol or pornography. Stop searching for meaning in online shopping or your curated image on Facebook and Instagram. Grieve the fall here and now. Shed tears for this life because this is not how it was meant to be. God made creation for so much more. 
And the difference between Christians and the rest of the world is that we have the freedom to enter into that grief because we have the hope. And our hope is not in vain. We know the end of the story. Our hope is in a life to come. And we have a risen Savior given to us as a guarantee. We look toward that day when cancer will claim no more lives. Our bodies will no longer break down and cause us pain. Murder will cease. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more wars. We will not cause each other pain. He will heal every wound, wipe away every tear, and make all things new. What makes heaven heaven is not a list of amenities. It's not a list of people we're going to see. It's not a list of things that we're going to do or even what our bodies will be like. The reason we long for eternal life is because it will be life unhindered by the striving and the suffering and the pain of this world. And if we're honest about our experiences now, the hope of heaven will grow even greater. We all grieve the various pains and losses in this life, and we are awaiting that final redemption. And what that means for us here and now is that we bring the pain and the mourning face to face with the hope that we have in Christ. This is already truth that we know in Scripture, but we we sometimes just need some new vocabulary or we need new ways to express the laments, the groanings of life. So I want you to consider today adopting some new phrases to be used in your prayers or in your conversations with others. Come, Lord Jesus. It's a simple phrase, and yet it directs our pain to the person who is ultimately going to fix it. How long, O Lord? The phrase of the psalmist that we see repeated in the Psalms. We cry out again, directing to the right person, asking, how long until you make all things new? How long until you wipe away these tears? Borrow lines from the songs that we sing. O Lord, haste the day when my faith will be sight. Bring it sooner. Hasten that day. I want to encourage you with a couple of other lines that we have in our songs. From Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. What a foretaste of redemption. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Think of the life to which you will be resurrected. The joy and the peace to leave the pain of this life behind. When on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was for sinners slain, is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ere his people be. All glory be to Christ. In your pain and your sorrow in this life, direct your soul to the one who is coming to make all things new. Look to the day when all the present strivings have passed away. I want you to look down at verse 6. Jesus says this, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The final question I extend to you today is, are you thirsty? 
Do you thirst for God to make his dwelling place with his people? Do you thirst for the most holy of holy place to be all you see for miles around you? Do you thirst for God himself to make all things new, to wipe away your tears, to bind up all your wounds? Do you thirst for the pain of this life to pass away? To you who thirst, Jesus has provided the everlasting spring for you to drink from, and he's already paid the cost. And I urge you today, if you do not know Jesus, look deep inside your soul What are you longing for? What is the deep dissatisfaction within you? What is causing your tears and your pain? I tell you, the same water is available to you. Jesus will satisfy your thirst. Jesus will wipe away your tears. Jesus will make all things new. It's a privilege that we get to look towards the Lord's Supper today. And when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he ordained that they should do this in remembrance of him. But he also said something that was kind of curious. He said this, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As we partake of this this morning, I want you to remember that Jesus gave this sign to his disciples. And when he did, his mind was on his return, when all things would be made new. If your faith is in Christ, we ask you to partake of this meal with us. But if you do not trust in Christ, I ask that you let the elements pass by you. As we partake of the bread and the juice together, we may also enjoy this as what is a taste of what is to come. And this table here is a symbol of the everlasting table where our fellowship will be complete and we will be with the Lord forever. Could I have those who are serving communion please come forward now? Would you pray with me? Lord God, what a glorious hope that we have that you have given us. And what a great reminder in the bread and the cup that we partake of now that that our fellowship is sure that this hope that we read of coming in the future, that this is sure, that you have given us this as a guarantee to do in remembrance of what Jesus has done until you come again, Lord. I pray that it would nourish us spiritually, that it would remind us continually of the unceasing fellowship that we have with you in Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.